Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Corpus coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia have got it! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Here's your host, Peter Donegan. As always, good to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who was at the top of his sport when the sport was big in this country in the 80s. And he's a member of that club, a very rare club, Champions of the World. His name is Barry Michael. He's with me in the studio. Baz, it's good to see you, mate. Great to see you, Pete. It's been quite a while, mate. But, it, uh, you so, haven't changed. Oh, I don't know about that, mate. I never used to wear glasses, but I... I have to now, unfortunately, but uh, mainly for long vision, but uh, most things are pretty good still. Oh, you've still got that boyish good look about you, though. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I try to keep myself pretty fit, but, uh, you know, like a lot of us older blokes, don't, I've always loved my wine and, and good food, and I've just, just come back from a pretty hectic week in Las Vegas, actually. It was pretty hectic for a week or so, I actually. Went to the Mayweather gym and got very well received there. Is it still a big boxing town because it was the epicentre of boxing for so long? Pete, I still think it's it is the major player in the world. Still, I mean, the fact that you've just had Tyson Fury versus um, Deontay Wilder there, you know, which is, <clears throat> you know, great two undefeated heavyweights fighting for the uh, heavyweight world title. One of the virgins, the other one is held by Anthony Joshua, of course. But um, yeah, no, it's it's still still the place. I mean, I've been to the MGM Grand. I've had the pleasure of commentating there with the great Colonel Bob Sheridan, mm. uh, Eddie McGuire, and I were over there not last year, the year before when unfortunately Jeff Horn lost to. The very talented Terence Crawford, who I think will go down as a pound-for-pound pound great. He's one of the best I've seen. I want to raise Eddie Maguire's name with you a little bit <laughs> later on because you and Ed have a bit of a history. and We sure do. There are a couple of stories that we could tell about that later <laughs> in the program. But first of all, um, what about the game in Australia, Baz? Where is it right now? Pete, I reckon, seriously, we're on the verge of the biggest boom for so long. Um, there's so many good fighters. Zach Dunn fighting for a world title March 28th in Germany. You know, that hasn't received much publicity yet. Uh, Jade Mitchell fights tomorrow night against Isvan Zilli. Another step up the ladder for Jade Mitchell, who in his last fight was brilliant, beating Stanislav Kashtanov, a former uh, world champion at super middleweight who lost the split decision for the WBA world title. And he tried to murder Jade. He really, he, he attacked Jade Mitchell every round. Jade won well. As I said, Zach Dunn, one loss in 29 victories with, I think, 24 knockouts. 
fights um, Dominic Bissell in Germany for the IBO World Light Heavyweight title and the interim WBA Light Heavyweight title, which means if he wins that, he'll be mandatory for Jean-Claude, um, I keep forgetting his name. Anyway, the French-Canadian who's a, a legend who, you know, is a big name. And if uh, if Zach Dunn actually wins this title, he, he'd probably get a fight against him, it would be a massive payday. So he's a serious fighter, Zach Dunn. Zach Dunn's a serious, serious, serious contender. He's, he's been around a long time. He's had, uh, he's had over 200 fights now, amateur and pro, you know, 29 pro fights and about 170 amateur. But we've got kids like Liam Wilson, who's fighting the undercard tomorrow night. He's a, he's a WBC youth super featherweight world champion. He's fighting around, uh, he's from, uh, Anyways, the South American who just his last fight lost a majority decision to a Mexican who in his next fight has just beat Tevin Farmer for the World Super Featherweight title. So, oh. so it's a tough fight for Liam Wilson. He's stepping up quick. Um, we, there's, look, there's so many good fighters. Rowan Murdoch in Queensland. Jai Opatira, I think, can win a world title. Um, <clears throat> yeah, look, there's many names I'm going to forget, but there's so many good fighters at the moment in Australia. I think momentum's building. I think... The heavyweight division is is alive again. You know, for over a decade, it was basically dead because of the Klitschko brothers. Not saying that they weren't fighting; they were beating everyone, but it was sort of not uh, not followed by the Western world. Let's say, you know, to to Russian or Ukrainian uh, world champions, and they held the world titles. And it was sort of a bit dull for a long time. But now you've got Tyson Fury, who's absolutely brilliant for boxing. Uh, Deontay Wilder, he, you know, just beat Deontay Wilder. Wilder saying he will take the mandatory rematch, which I think is a mistake. And of course, Anthony Joshua, who, who is magnificent for boxing. I think he's a bit chinny. And I think uh, Tyson Fury, if that fight does happen, I'd be certainly backing Tyson Fury. From an Australian point of view, is it good that we've moved on from the, the Danny Green, um, Anthony Mundine era? <laughs> and we've got the likes of Tim Zhu coming up Tim now. Zhu, of course, another great name. And Jeff Horn. I'll be doing that fight next uh, in March. That's that's going to be um, sorry, sorry April. That's going to be a cracking fight, you know. But Tim Zhu's a, a real up and coming star. He's a dead ringer for his dad in mm. so many ways. Got big shoes to fill there, you know. Because for my money, Kosha Zhu probably the greatest fighter this country's had. Really? Oh, when you look at it, he was undefeated, light welterweight world champion for a decade, unified world champion. So he, he, he ducked no one, and a lot of good fighters did did duck Kosha. Don't worry about that. But um, Jeff Horner, I mean, I picked Jeff Horner to beat Manny Pacquiao, which, you know, Manny Pacquiao, one of the greatest in history, but timing is so much in boxing. And Manny was too busy being a senator and totally underestimated the very strong, unorthodox Jeff Horn, who's got his own style. He's 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 not um, conventional in a lot of ways. He's, he's awkward to fight. He's very strong. He's a very good puncher. I became aware of Jeff Horn in I think it was his third or fourth professional fight, I promoted him with my partner, partner Brian Armitruder. We promoted him at uh, the Melbourne Pavilion, and he fought one of Brian's fighters called Samuel Columban. And Sam probably terribly sick of him hearing me talk about this because no one's ever knocked Sam out before or since. And at that time, I was involved with Zach Dunn and, and Jake Carr, and they'd both trained with him in the Australian Institute of Sport. And I said, "How does Jeff Horn go against Sam Colomban?" They said, "They go, he'll knock Jeff, he'll knock Sam Colomban out." I said, "No one's knocked Sam out." They said, "He'll knock him out." One minute into the first round, one of the best right hands you've ever seen. Sam Colomban was asleep. He was counted out. Jeff Horn was celebrating, and all of a sudden, 
Sam Colliban jumps up and wanted to start. He didn't even know the fight was over. Wow. It was clean. And, you know, we should have picked him up then in, and kept him in Melbourne, Jeff Horn, but he did extreme, incredible victory to beat Manny Pacquiao and unfortunately lost had one successful defence and then lost to Terence Crawford. Just as a follow-up from that knockout you were talking about, you're very lucid. You're 64 now? 64, 65, June 2nd. The news came out not long ago that Polly Farmer had yeah. CTE, yeah. and he will be the first of many, probably. Undoubtedly, yeah. Was that <laughs> something that shook you a little bit when you um, heard that news? Well, probably, you know, I've been reading about it for a few years, and as actually a, a, a scientist friend of mine who's heavily involved in, in looking at uh, brain injury in, in sportsmen, trying to prevent it going forward, with training and in competition and try, you know, trying to also help the people that have, that have got it. But, um, uh, you know, like boxing gets a really bad rap. I mean, I had 60 professional fights over 15 years, 14 and a half years, nearly 15 years. So an average of about four a year. But I mean, I was in the gym sparring. I sparred all over the world. I've sparred hundreds of thousands of rounds. So I, look, I, I, I joke at sportsman's nights. I say now, look, re- in reality, I should be able to get away with anything because my head's got more hits than Google. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Pete, I, I was never concussed to my knowledge. I was never knocked down in 60 professional fights. I took one knockdown as an amateur in my 10th amateur fight. Um, I was shaken up quite a few times, you know, during the fights that I had. And even in the gym, you, you do take punishment, you take lots of punishment in the gym. And a lot of fighters are ruined in gym wars. I sparred everyone. I sparred heavyweights and, and I don't know, I, I think I'm just bloody lucky to be honest. And I mean, four years ago at the WBC convention in Vegas, they asked, cause I'm an IBF world champion. They asked, Mike Tyson was there, uh, Floyd Mayweather and all the old champions, Holyfield, everyone. And they asked every champion of every different body to get on stage. And there was something like... 150 world champions on stage from all over the world. You know, I was really proud to be amongst them. And I was walking around talking to as many as I could. I got to meet Oscar De La Hoya. I didn't get to meet Tyson. You know, Jeff Phoenix promised me I'm going to meet him with him one day, but we haven't got around to that. But got talking to all these old timers, John H. Tracy from England. And of the whole lot of them, there was really only two that weren't really good. And one of them is Tommy Hearns and Tommy's, you know, show, sh- showing the wear and tear of a tough career, very tall, lanky sort of bloke, but looks, doesn't look really well when he's walking. His speech is not great, but the worst one of all, and he's passed on since then was Bobby Chacon, who at one stage I was offered a considerable purse to fight him in LA, but it fell over and I would have taken the fight, but he was a, a warrior, but you know, he sat next to me at dinner and he could barely converse and he could barely feed himself. There's there's really no hard and fast rule in boxing. Some fighters can have 300 fights and be as good as gold, and some can have 20 and be be damaged. You know, so it's probably the same in in football. And I think the more we study it, the more we get into it, we're going to find out reasons why some more some people are, uh, you know, more likely to get damaged than others. Do you have any memory issues at all? <laughs> Only if I've drunk too much. <laughs> I noticed Jeff Fennick came out recently and said that he's he's uh, willing to donate his brain. I'll be willing to donate mine as well. Um, Benny said that he's starting to have memory issues and that, but, you know, Jeff doesn't mind a drink either. And, you know, like there's times I do forget people's faces. I'm not really good with faces. My wife is brilliant. And there's people that I might mean meet three or four times before I really, they really stick in my memory. That's probably my biggest issue, but that's probably my vision 
my vision's a little bit blurry, especially my right eye's a little bit blurred. And that wasn't, it was from a couple of boxing injuries, but I actually had a, a guy King hit me on the street about five or six years ago because we gave his dog some water, my wife and I, on a 46-degree day. I probably shouldn't talk about it too much because the police got involved and they said to me, Barry, because I ended up beating the crap out of him, mm. but he damaged my eye really badly. So I've, <clears throat> I never used to wear glasses before then. What was his beef? What were... oh, I just think he was a homeless junkie, ice head, I think. And uh, I just, you know, we, my wife, first of all, she said, we're real animal people. We love our animals. And yeah. she said... Uh, Look at these two poor dogs tied to this pole. They'd be dying of thirst and they've got no water. I said, you're right. She said, I'll go in and get some water and you go and see if they're friendly. So I went up and started patting them and they were friendly and she brought the water over and all of a sudden I hear, get away from my effing dogs or I'm going to smash your effing faces in, like threatening my wife and I. And I tried to calm the bloke down. But anyway, cut a long story short, I said to him, it was dumb at the time, but legally I'm supposed to say it. I said, mate, if you attack me, you might get a shot because I'm an ex-boxer. Yeah. And from then on, it was a blur. And when I got the video from the police, I see that he's thrown a left hook at me. I've pulled away and he just followed through with the right hand. He obviously knew how to fight and hit me flush in the eye. And I reeled back and put my hand in my eye because I drew blood. And then um, the punch on started and it went on for a while and the security broke it up a couple of times. And in the end, I just <laughs> threw the security out the way and... and finished him off sort of thing. But uh, it was just horrific, to be honest. It, I mean, Melbourne's a different place now. I mean, th that shouldn't be, shouldn't happen on our streets. And I've never started a fight in my life, you know, you know, in a ring different, but I've never started a fight outside, outside of uh, a ring. Just one last point about the, the memory and all that sort of thing. You remember birthdays and you oh, have no problem yeah, with those sort of yeah, things? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Why are you smiling? Oh, don't worry. No, I, just having a bit of a laugh, yeah. I, I, I could expand on it. But no, I'm pretty good with birthdays. Are you a, an MMA fan? Because it seems as though in our day, boxing was it. Yeah. And now there's a bit of a split audience mm. and mm. some people love it and some people can't stand it. What camp are you in? I'm sort of a little bit divided. I mean, I do admire how tough they are and it's a, it's a combination of all different martial arts and Look, it's just, but I just think it's a bit too tough and a bit too brutal. I mean, my dad, he's 96, he's still with us. I took him to see the Ronda Rousey Holly Home fight a few years ago, and I actually backed Holly Home in that fight. I think I got 14 to 1. But when Holly Holm knocked her down, Rousey with a kick and jumped on her and started elbowing her in mm. the head, my dad, he was just, he, he just couldn't believe it. You know, two women um, absolutely smashing each other, you know, and. <laughs> Look, it is a brutal, tough sport. I do admire the guys and, and good luck to them, but um, I far prefer boxing, to be honest. Speaking about your dad, we're going to talk about your origins, and they were a long way away from here. Bloody, uh, oath, bloody oath they were. When you came into the world. We'll find out <laughs> more from Barry Michael when we come back on the other side of the break. Great to have the world champion with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au. Plenty more with Baz still to come after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Proud supporters of International Women's Day. What a pleasure it is to have Barry Michael as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, a family-owned business since 1934, Tobin Brothers, and they give us the opportunity of talking to the greats of Australian sport. But, Baz, the journey began, and it didn't begin in Australia. No, no, I'm, I'm an import. I was a 10-pound pom. My parents um, migrated from Watford when I was two. But uh, my dad <coughs> decided 
when he left the United Kingdom, and you know we're very proud of our British heritage, and you know been back quite a few times, and got you know hundreds of relatives in the United Kingdom, but my dad decided that he was going to start a new life, and he we, we were naturalised within about three years of coming to Australia, and my dad's always considered himself an Aussie. You know he hasn't really got an accent anymore either, but um, yeah, we first uh, when we came out, we were first sponsored by the Apex. Uh, Apex Club because my dad's skipper. My dad did 29 trips over Germany in the Lancaster bombers, dropping bombs on Germany. He still has some pretty severe flashbacks at 96, especially of when they bombed Dresden, which was pretty horrific. But um, his skipper, um, Johnny Reimer, who was a doctor down in Hamilton, he they sponsored us through the Apex cl- Club. <clears throat> and my first memories of Australia were when I was about two in Hamilton. I've got a few memories because my dad was actually a a caretaker of a a Catholic girls' college and we lived on the premises. We had like a house on the premises and we had ducks and there was a big dam there. I remember my ducks because I'd pet ducks and and we used to go hunting. We used to do a lot of rabbit hunting back in those days because there was rabbits everywhere. And, um, yeah, so and I remember the... I remember the nuns actually in the in the um, girls' college. They used to call me fatty because I was pretty chubby, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So they were my first memories. And we we lived lived there I think till I was probably about five maybe, and then we moved to Glen Burby briefly, which is right next to Windy Hill, right near Windy Hill in Essendon. That's where I became a bomber supporter, and um, and I've been a bomber supporter ever since. But I've been a bit disillusioned with all the drugs drama and all that. And I, I could expand on that more because I saw quite a bit of what went on. But, um, yeah, then we lived, we moved to Hamilton and we lived in commission flats in, uh, Glen Burvey, right near Glen Burvey station. Then we moved to, to Williamstown when I was probably about six or maybe seven, seven, maybe seven. And we lived in uh, flat one, number 99, uh, Aitken street, Williamstown for many years until my parents got the department deposit on a house and they bought their first house, which was 113 Thompson Street, Williamstown. I think they paid $7,000 for it. Um, last year it went for about 1.35, I, I think. I was just going to say houses in Williamstown yeah. are a little bit more than that these Yeah, days. well, you know, this was before the Westgate Bridge was built. And in those days, St Kilda and Williamstown were like the heroin capitals. And I probably lost about five friends uh, through heroin overdoses as I was growing up. And as a young, young boy, by the time I when I started boxing at 15 out of a club in, um, in Williamtown and growing up in Williamtown as a young bloke, I wanted to get out of there in a way, lived all over the world. I've lived in, you know, state Indonesia for a while, lived in Hawaii for six months, England, Wales, you know, the United States and fought and trained in all these places around the world. And I'm back in Williamstown, you know, mm. but my wife and I bought a house in John street, just around the corner from where my dad built his uh, first really big house in Mariner street. Um, yeah, and it's just a great place to be. Do you ever get to the footy down at Point Jellybrand? Have you seen any games down there with the Seagulls? <laughs> I have, but not for quite a while. Um, windy old place down there, Baz. It, it is, yeah, it is a windy spot. You know that, and and you accumulated <laughs> a bit of money over the journey through your fighting, but also through your business. But uh, I hope you don't mind me asking. But there was a court case that went through a few years ago, and someone got hold of you and cost you a fair bit of money. Yeah, the low low swine. Um, yeah, um, Carlo Cini, he's, uh, he went to jail. He did quite a, he ripped off about six, seven million dollars of, of local people's money, me included. Got, got, uh, my wife and I for a considerable amount. 
and uh, been all liquidated now and never received a cent back. But uh, yeah, he's he's done his time. He's he's been released. I don't know where he is, and uh, I still think he'd be looking over his shoulder for a long, long time for a lot of people. And just one follow up: you talked about your son at the moment, <laughs> and you talked about the upbringing and and what you saw as a kid. I suppose it's it sort of probably gave you a bit of a sense of deja vu when you see it happening with a family member all those years later. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, like we all make choices. We all have choices. And unfortunately, my son's gone down the wrong track. And I mean, for our listeners out there, you know, bringing up your children now, it's a minefield because undoubtedly whether it doesn't matter if you live in Turak, doesn't matter if you live in Brighton or you live in, you know, the the worst suburb, they're going to come across drugs. And unfortunately, I've had... uh, too much to do with, with, with crystal meth, ice, what I've seen of ice. And there was a thing on, um, sunrise this morning about the talking about, uh, decriminalizing ice. Well, I think that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard because you, about 90% of all violent issues now that the police have to, you know, handle are ice related murders, aggravated burglaries, you know, assaults, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So much of it is involved with ice. Stories abound in boxing over the years of fixed fights, and you talked about being offered money. When someone comes along with a big amount of money, even with those principles, is it something that crosses your mind, or it just never did? Um, the last one I was offered. Three major ones, and it was actually one of them hit the paper a week or so ago because one of them was Lucky Gatilari, the brother of Rocky Gatilari. He's he's just recently been released, for, released from jail. He did quite a bit of time for, <coughs> for conspiracy to murder. At the weigh-in when we were going to, sorry, at the press conference when we were going to fight each other, I was getting fifteen hundred dollars to defend the Australian title back then. You know, huge amount of money. I think we're talking about seventy nine, maybe it might have been. Um, and he came up and. After big noting himself at the press conference, and he came up and he said to me, he'd offer me 15000 if I lost the fight. And I said, you know, see you later. In no uncertain terms. Words know? to that effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but then I was offered another one, which I, I don't really want to talk about, which was, was to fight someone to a draw. And I said, that can't happen and blah, 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 reasons. And I don't want to talk about it because it sort of led me a bit open. But the third one was a European guy came out, I won't mention names, but he was a big European promoter and he insisted, he just came out to watch, watch my second defence against Mark Fernandez, who was number four in the world. He'd just beaten Rod Sequenen, who gave Lester Ellis a real war and was a great fighter and, you know, gave everyone a war, Sequenen. Well, Fernandez had just beaten him clearly in Hawaii. He was number four in the world and he was a southpaw. I knocked him out in two rounds, uh, sorry, four rounds. And after the fight, I got to get this call from this European guy saying that he wanted to meet me for lunch and had a proposition for me in Europe and, and he insisted that I go by myself. So I figured it was going to be a bit fishy. Anyway, cut a long story short, 1985 we're talking about, he offered me 80,000 to fight his fighter on the level. He said, but my, I came out of here expecting to see a tired old champion. He said, my boy can't beat you. Um, he said, but, um, you know, we'll pay you 80000 and the fight will be on the level, but my boy will not beat you, can't beat you, but my boy cannot make the weight. Now, 58.95 was the world su- the super featherweight limit. Now, I'd fought as high as 63.5, like welterweight, and I was Australian lightweight champion at 61.2 for a decade. I never lost it in Commonwealth lightweight champion twice. That was the division I always thought I'd win a world title in, but fortunately for Lester Ellis, which is a story we'll get around to, I'm sure, 
Um, I got the opportunity to fight for a world title, which I've been denied for so long. But this, there's this guy saying me the fight's on the level, but my boy who was European lightweight champion, he was, so he was European champion at 61.2. He said, my boy cannot make the weight 58.95. And I go, okay, well, what can he make? He goes, 63 and a half. So he goes, but the scales will say that you're, you know, 58.95. But in reality, my fighter can't get under 63 and a half. And mm. yet he was European champion at 61.25. So you can see what goes on there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he said, my boy can't beat you regardless, but I'm willing to make you an offer of 300,000 US paid into a Swiss bank account, handed to your father before the fight. He said, and he said, he, he did his homework, this guy. He said, I, I see you've had busted eardrums. He said, uh, and you've never been knocked off your feet. You're a very proud fighter, but you know, we want a world champion. I'm not going to mention the country. And he said, um, we, you can retire at the end of whatever round you want, saying that you've had a ruptured eardrum. We'll have it, we'll have it approved, you know, agreed to by a doctor. And say, so, you know, and the money will be in your bank account. And I just said, listen, I'm not interested. But to be honest with you, I did have to think about that one a few times. 300,000 US. <laughs> Back then in 85. Yeah, that's a lot, a of, lot money. of money. Yeah. But you stuck to your principles and yeah. credit to you because a lot happened over the years. And you know what? He, he ended up winning um, a version of a world title at welterweight. Um, and people, if they know boxing, they might be able to work their way through this one. Um, he won a, a version of a world title at World of World Away. All I ever read was it was under a suspicious circumstances. Let's leave it at that <sighs> and we'll take a break. And you mentioned a name, Lester Ellis. Yep. And we are going to talk about that fight, which is still talked about to this day when well, we come back on the other side of the break. Barry Michael is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, proud supporters of International Women's Day. Really enjoying the chat with the world champion Barry Michael on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, 1934, a family-owned business, tobinbrothers.com.au if you want to find out some more. Baz, let's talk about your entry into the pro ranks and one place in particular that must hold a very special place in your heart, the Great Festival Hall. Undoubtedly. I mean, Festival Hall, for me, as a young kid, like 15 onwards, I mean, I'm at 13, I, I think I was 13 when Lionel Rose, the great Lionel Rose, won the World Bantamweight title in Japan, in Tokyo against Fighting Harada, and I became a, I was already a boxing fanatic, and it was 15, I had my first fights, and fortunately I ended up being a sparring partner of the great man, Lionel. But, um, yeah, you know, just to, just, just to see him and at early doors he was fighting at Festival Hall, but TV ringside back then was like a religion. It was. And uh, that was my goal and, and at that stage. My goal and dream was to actually fight for a world title, at least get to the pinnacle and fight for a world title. At that stage I didn't think beyond that, which is, you know, fair enough I suppose, but it was just actually to be good enough to fight for a championship of the world. I wanted to hear the man saying 15 three-minute rounds, which they don't have anymore, they have 12, but 15 three-minute rounds for the championship of the world. I started at, in TV ringside, I think probably 73, I think it would have been. I had my first seven fights the first year on TV ringside and one best first-year fighter on ringside. The next year I fought one four-rounder and I fought two six-rounders. I think one of them I lost to Jimmy Brown, who I fought four times, and I thought I might have won at that time. He beat me in the amateurs for the state bantamweight title. Well, I fought him four times. It wasn't until the fourth fight that I knocked him out in the 15th round, thank God, finally got the victory. (laughs) The whole TV ringside thing was fabulous. It was great grounding for boxers back then. You had a fight at the Dallas Brooks Hall. Three. 
Um, there's one in particular that they talk about, though. Al Carter. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is yeah, it true was... that you blew him a kiss before the fight started? Yeah, yeah. He... Was, was that a good move, Baz? Um, well, I mean, you know, I knew he was going to try and murder me anyway. <laughs> um, when I fought him, he had 24 fights. He'd won his, his 23 knockouts he had in 24 fights. He'd won his last 19 straight by knockout. He beat uh, the great Aaron Pryor and Tommy Hearns in the amateurs. They expected him to win a world title. I was meant to be the cannon fodder because I was, I think, number nine or number eight in the world at the time. And an uh, American promoter called Don Elborn, uh, he, he brought him out here and they just couldn't, he couldn't believe the punishment I took and <clears throat> my body shots wore him down and it, look, it was a brutal, tough fight. And to be honest with you, nobody, and I mean nobody, ever hit me as hard. Round one, he hit me with three right hands that shook me really badly and I almost touched down a couple of times, but round eight, he hits me with a left hook and the commentator, Mike Ryan, great man, he's no longer with us, you know, God rest his soul, Mike, and promoted me quite a bit, but Mike Ryan's saying, Barry, Mike has been hit by a dozen knockout punches tonight, doesn't look like being hurt, but all of a sudden he's hurt, he's hurt. And then he goes, he's gone. He gave me up as gone, you know, mm. but he had me against the ropes and he was throwing bombs at me and I was sort of rolling and slipping, but I was I had pins and needles in my feet and I was very groggy and I finally, you know, got hold of him and grabbed him. He pushed me off and bombarded me again and, and the bell went and, you know, I came back to the corner. My dad said, you okay? So I said, I'm fine. And I went out and won the ninth and won the 10th and nearly stopped him in the 10th. A lot of people thought the fight was actually stopped, but, um, he accepted the loss. He was humble. Um, we actually kept in contact for a while. I kept in contact with his family. Was Gus Mercurio the third man in the ring that night? Uh, yes, Gus was the referee against uh, Al Carter. He was also the referee when I fought uh, Lester Ellis. And that's the fight yeah. that I want to get to. Yeah, now. yeah. The build-up to the fight and you having to make the weight. How tough was that? Yeah, well, it was it was really, really, well, it was tough. But, you know, when I look back on it in history, I probably should have fought at that weight all my life, you know, I mean, we, we thought that we knew about diet and nutrition, but we didn't because the old methods were, you always had a steak before you fought, you know, from the olden times and stuff like that. And it's probably one of the worst things you could do if you have a steak the day of a fight. Um, you know, like when I finally, um, decided to, to drop to the weight and I hadn't fought at that weight in, since 1976 and I'd lost a 15 round decision of Billy Moella in orange, and I got a 1,000 for that one, um, 15 threes. I won the Australian title over 15 threes in Coonabarabran in 1978, and I got 750 for that one and had to fly up in a single-engine Cessna that a mate of mine flew. A bit sus about single-engine planes these So days. hang on, I've just done some maths there. <laughs> 750 for 15 rounds. Yeah. So you got 50 bucks a round. Yeah. 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 Not a good pay rate. No. No. Well, these days, I mean, fighters get seriously underpaid even now. And I mean, the average going rate for most fighters, not not the guys in the main events, but the undercard fighters, they average about 300 around. So, you know, 1,200 for a four-rounder, you know, 1,800, 2,000 for a six-rounder. You know, it's around about 300 around. So it's it's not huge. I mean, you've until you get to the stage where you're fighting in front of massive audience and your pay-per-view like like Jeff Horn's made good money. Tim Zhu is now a pay-per-view fighter. Unless you're a pay-per-view fighter, you don't really make big money. Back to the Leicester fight. Yep, yep. You you and he had a pretty good relationship, didn't you? But I think it's fair enough to say that your respective camps didn't quite share that relationship. Would that be fair comment? What happened, Pete, was, to be honest with you, 
Keith Ellis Senior, who is no longer with us either, you know, Keith was a, a remarkable man, but not a an honest man. Can I put how can I put it, put it like that? He was always had to try and get one up on you, and not 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 fairly. Um, early doors, uh, Lester's father. Look, the first time I ever sparred Lester Ellis, I was twenty two and he was twelve, and I went to the Glen Gala Boxing Gym because I used to go around all the gyms and I'd spar as you know, as many young blokes as I could. And I'd, I always try to put back and help them and, and teach them and that. And I got out the ring and I said, what's this kid's name? And they said, Lester Ellis. I said, and he was 12. And I said, this boy's going to be a world champion. And then I sort of took him under my wing. And around about the same time, I met Graham Brooks, Lionel's cousin. And, you know, it was just it's sad when I look back on it because I loved the, loved the two of them. And, you know, Graham and I, we, Lester and I are great mates too, but Graham and I have got a terrific bond. We sparred, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rounds. But, um, yeah, I sort of nurtured Lester and taught him. And um, his father always used to lead me, lead me to believe that when my career was over, which they figured wouldn't be too far away, that I would basically take over Lester's career. But Keith, the elder brother, who only, I think he had one fight, um, basically, you know, and Keith was, a, a, he became the, on record, the best trainer Australia ever had, the fighters that he produced. He was very good psychologically, brilliant in a lot of ways. Um, he basically took over Lester's career, um, took over his management. And when when we, when I challenged him, we, we hadn't sparred about a year before. We, every time I sparred Lester, even from 12, he, he had this incredible killer instinct. He wanted to, and he had ability, enormous ability, fast hands, power, and I taught him lots of things, and I really think if I had to become his trainer and manager rather than having to fight him for the world title, I think that he could have been the greatest fighter maybe this country's ever seen because I don't think he he um, advanced on his ability to jab. He, it was all about knocking everyone out, and Lester did knock most people out. Mm. Um, and when we fought, like, the bad blood happened because – like Keith said, the last, probably a year or so before, a year before we fought, we sparred the last two times. One, I'd just come back from Queensland where I had a couple of fights up there and I'd got involved in a restaurant which went bad and I was drinking too much and, you know, I was 20, 28 and, you know, which is like coming, in those days used to be considered coming towards the end of your career and I'd beaten Frank Rapus on Ash Wednesday and I had beaten Carter and I'd been, you know, up as high as number two in the world. A lot of people thought my career was over <clears throat> and I came back from, Queensland overweight and had been drinking too much and we sparred at a Beckett Street, the gym I used to have in a Beckett Street and he dead said got away with me Lester and it was all around the you know, it was all around Melbourne in no time that Lester had got away with me in a gym spa. So for about a week or so I lived like I should have lived and and then we sparred again and I even it up big time and that was the last time we ever sparred. So he won one and I won one of the last two spars we had and it wasn't until a year later and I was absolutely wrapped when Lester won the world title and I tipped he would do it and then he had his first defence against the Quenon and as I said, I was number two in the world and one day I'm in the gym and I just said to my dad, Dad, I'm going to challenge Lester for the world title and he said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm going to challenge, he goes, what, what? what weight? I said, I'm going to challenge him at super featherweight, you know, 58.95. He goes, son, he goes, I think you might have to give it away. And I go, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, you can't make the weight. I think you might've been hitting the head too much, you know? And we sort of had a bit of a laugh and I said, no dad, I can do it. I know I can do it. So that, then we sort of put the, 
the feelers out there. And to be honest with you, at that stage, Dana Goodson, who was a black American trainer or box, kickboxer number two in the world that I'd met in Hawaii and I'd actually lived with in, in Hawaii and I brought him to Australia, promoted him here and had him as my trainer and then went back to Miami for a big fight, which I collapsed, was was the biggest opportunity in my life and I ripped the plantar fascia completely off my heel in the fist red gym sparring a Canadian called Mario Cusson, who was a main event fighter. But it was my last sparring session before a, a nationally tele, televised fight against Juan Arroyo and, the, and if I had a one, I would have fought Harry Arroyo for the IBF world title under Bob Arum. I'd sign a contract with the great Bob Arum. Anyway, I collapsed. The fight was cancelled. Um, I broke down crying. Dana was crying. We got back to Melbourne. Within, within one week, Dana Goodson's training Lester Ellis. So he jumped ship. Yeah. When we got in the ring, I walked up to Lester and took me, he waited, made, made me wait over 20 minutes before he came out. I don't know if you remember that, Pete, but yeah. I, knew, I knew he had to come. Um, and I walked over to Lester and I said, thanks for the title, Lester. And Lester went, F off, like that. And I said, and, and as for you, I, I can't say what I said, but I gave Dana a pretty good cook, you know. Mm. But we end up mates. But anyway, um, yeah, so what happened with, with, the, with the weight? Dad thought I was crazy. I said, Dad, I'm going to do this properly. I'll go, go to a dietitian. I could make the weight reasonably comfortably. So she put me on a diet. And it was, it was super strict. It was a thousand calories a day, which is nothing. Um, and you know, let me let myself relax a little bit once a week. The rest of the time I'd stick to it religiously. And a month before the fight, we did a trial weigh in. I sparred 15 rounds with four different opponents, um, and did it comfortably. So, and, uh, that was when Mr. Gangitano rang me up and said, you know, do you want more tickets? And I said, yeah, but stop backing Lester because he can't beat me. What happened between you and Alphonse Gangitano? <laughs> to this day, I, I still am not, the only way I can figure it, the way he turned was because they lost so much money. You know, they, they were back in Leicester big time. They were paying off for months. <clears throat> I um, And that caused a pretty violent meeting between you two, didn't well, it? Well, it, I... I'd, you know, everyone talked about, and I mean, for two years I'd walk around Melbourne or go to places, and people would have a go at me for not giving Lester Ellis a rematch. I would have, I, I would have fought Lester in a heartbeat. And Lester knows that. Lester finally has come out a few times and said that he never wanted a rematch. I always had his number. I just had too much experience for Lester and too much physical strength. And he kept saying the first few rounds, he kept saying, "You're going down. You're going down. I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to knock you out." You know. And I kept saying to him, "Lester." And I'd hit him with a body shot and I'd say, that hurts you, didn't it, Lester? You won't be here for 15 rounds, Lester. And he'd go nuts. We're just about out of time. No We're worries, taking our final break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about something that you did that a lot of boxers don't do, and that is when you retired, you stayed retired. And the other thing that I want to talk to you about is something I alluded to at the start of the program, Eddie Maguire. There's a bit of a story there. There's a few stories. We'll find out from Barry Michael when we come back on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Our final segment with the world champion Barry Michael on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Baz, I alluded to it before we went to the break. When your great career came to an end, you stayed retired. Was it easy to do that? No, Pete. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do because, <clears throat> like, for you know, for, uh, nearly 15 years as a professional, I'd had a routine where I'd run in the morning and, you know, train in the afternoon, 
14, 15 years the pro, a couple of years as an amateur prior to that. Uh, so, you know, 17 years of my life and I was 32 when it was all over. To, I'll be honest with you, I have never, after I retired, I was never, ever offered one legitimate bite. I was maybe offered a few shady things, but I would have, I would have, because I challenged Jeff Fennick, I was, would have made a comeback and fought Jeff. Jeff and I are great mates now. He used to hate me, but I think uh, Jeff and I would have been an absolute war. It would have been a barn burner, would have been a great fight. And, you know, he's one of our greatest undoubtedly. And we get along really well now, but as I said, a great champion, he had a great career and, uh, and it never happened. But, you know, I, I look back now and I see, I'm glad I never fought again. Well, like, like Mundine, Anthony Mundine, I've loved Mundine right from the start. I picked him as a future world champion the first time I saw him train. I said, this guy will be world champion. But Anthony Mundine was one of the most gifted athletes that we've seen and a brilliant boxer and a, and a great puncher. I, I just hate seeing him still considering fighting. I, you know, I, he's been finished for five years probably and he still keeps going back to the post. There's no other, how can I put this? There's no other, there's nothing that compares in your life that will, will, you know, that excitement and the thrill, even if you've fought a 10-round or a 12-round championship fight, even if you've lost and you've fought well, it's still the greatest buzz of all mm. time. You know, it's an incredible buzz, but it's even better when you win, of course. And you won a lot, but you mm. were nailed a few times in the ring, mm. and one bloke who nailed you one day was a bloke called Eddie Maguire. <laughs> he certainly did. What um, happened? What's your relationship with Ed? I Ed and I are great mates. You know, I just I, I, it makes me angry when I hear anyone say a bad word about Eddie because um, I first met Eddie when he was eighteen, and um, it was the first day he ever went out to do an interview. Um, and he'd been to it was before Ash Wednesday, February sixteenth, nineteen eighty three, and he'd been out to interview Frank Rapers before he came to my girlfriend's house in Conifer Avenue, Altona North, Barbara Cakebread, and. Uh, and Eddie knocked on the door with a camera crew and, you know, they told me they were coming and he was, it was, he was nervous. He was very nervous. And I said, you know, mate, sit down, have a cup of tea. And we just hit it off, you know, and we became good mates. So he sort of started following me. And then, um, it probably wasn't until after I'd retired, I think that, uh, after I lost the world title at 32, that I started training him, training Eddie, but Eddie always followed the game from then on. You know, he was there seeing ringside when I beat Lester Ellis screaming his head off and mm -hmm. always, you know, interviewed me and Eddie and I sparred ooh, hundreds of rounds. You know, I used to meet him in a gym in, uh, in Ascot Vale actually, and he used to park his BMW around the back and it was about a full size gym ring in this place. And it was a really good gym this particular morning. Uh, and I've been, what I do, I do with fighters, and I still do it a bit now, but I've got to be a bit cautious at 64. I get someone in the ring and then I, I wear the gloves and a head guard. And I let them throw punches at me. I call them. I say left, right, left, right, hook, rip hook, you know, whatever. And I show them where they should be positioned, but I let them throw them hard. And then I, in the old days, a lot more, I'd go, okay, have a bit of a crack at me. And this particular morning, I'd had a pretty late night and it was, you know, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. We're meeting at the, at the gym and I'd been teaching Eddie how to jab to the body and come over the top with the right hand. And we'd moved around. I got him throwing punches, had him throwing combos. And I said, all right, let's move around, have a bit of a crack at me. And he's gone jabbed the body. He's gone whack, hit me flush on the chin. And it shook me. It really shook me a bit. And he's gone, shit, don't hit me. He goes, you can have the BMW. <laughs> 
It's been a brilliant journey. It's had its ups and downs along the way, but you were so much a part of the sport when it was such a huge sport here Certainly in was, Australia. Yeah. And what you've done in years after that has kept boxing at the forefront. You've done a lot for the sport. The sport should be very grateful for what you've done for it, and I'm sure you're grateful for what it's done for you. Definitely, Pete. I mean, I love I love boxing and I think it gets a pretty unfair rap at times. What a pleasure it's been to sit down with you for an hour, Baz. It's been good to see you. You too, Pete. Really good. Barry Michael joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you enjoyed the chat. We'll be back with another great of Australian sport right here, same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.